at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately or rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 or through the Internet, for the next hour we'll be taking people's questions concerning God's Word. Maybe a passage you're trying to figure out as to why it's there or what it means or how to apply a text of Scripture to your life. So if you have questions, we welcome them. In the next hour, you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. We receive a lot of questions that way each week. Uh, in addition, you can call us here directly. Uh, again, the local number is 843-525-1859, 525-1859, area code 843. Or toll free, our 877 number is the call letters, WAGP. Uh, WAGP 980. Either way, you can call us. You can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can just remain anonymous and dictate your question uh, to Deb, who's taking questions today. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. Let's go ahead and we'll get started. Indeed, Pastor, and I think we already have our first live caller on the air, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. God bless you, Pastor. How are you doing today? Hey, good, brother. Thanks for calling. How can we be of help? Um, I got a question. I hear you talk about apostles and pastors and different things, but I was—I heard before that some churches they got reverence, but then they talk about reverence was like short for a name of God. So I want you to explain that to me if I'm right and I'm wrong or anything. Okay, sure. Let me see if I can respond. First, let me deal with apostles, and then let me deal with uh, titles in the church. Um, the term apostle is used in two ways in the Bible in a very technical way, and then in a non-technical way. Let me explain what I mean by that. In a technical way, it's a title uh, for a specific group of men that were specifically called out by Jesus Christ uh, in order to uh, be a part in the early days of the church. To be an apostle, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, you had to have been selected by Christ and seen him in his resurrection body. And in addition, if you really were a true apostle, then the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that there would be certain signs, wonders, and miracles that would give evidence to the fact that indeed Christ had called you as one of his apostles. So Paul makes this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. He said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance uh, by signs and wonders and miracles. If you know the chapter, 
He's defending his apostleship against those who say, well, Paul was a Johnny come lately. He wasn't one of the original 11 or 12. And and uh, so he's not a real apostle. And Paul said, well, in reality, the, the signs, the miracles of a true apostle were done in your presence. And so if everyone can do these signs, wonders and miracles that he mentions here in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, then his argument is meaningless. So to be an apostle, you had to have been called by Jesus Christ, seen him in his resurrected body. And indeed, if those two things were true, then there would be signs, wonders, and miracles that would accompany your life. I say all that to say this. There are no apostles today. Now, there's a second use of the term apostle in the Bible, and it speaks of a spiritual gift. Um, and so, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul is speaking about gifts that God gives to his people. Every born-again Christian, the day God saved him, he gave him a spiritual gift. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what reason? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith. So there's a spiritual gift of apostleship, just like there's a spiritual gift of serving or mercy. In this passage, in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he's speaking of certain leadership gifts in the church that allow the other gifts to mature and to develop, but every gift is needed. And one of those gifts is the gifts, the gift of apostleship. Epaphroditus was not one of the original apostles. And yet he's called an apostle. Usually in the English Bible, sometimes to distinguish um, the term apostle from someone who served in the office is it's translated a sent one or a messenger, depending on the English translation. Uh, I was just uh, speaking with uh, someone a few days ago and uh, he was telling me about a church. They were asking him to come and and pastor and he wanted my feedback and he said the man who uh, planted this particular church he has spent his whole life uh, going into a community uh, sharing the gospel gathering unchurched Christians leading people to Christ training them and then once there's a fairly sizable congregation he feels called to move on and to bring in a full-time pastor that's the gift of apostleship it has the same marks and manifestations of a pastor teacher who does the work of an evangelist. But the difference is, is that this person doesn't stay for long-term care. They get it up and running and then a pastor or shepherd comes in in a more permanent basis. Um, but you will see on some signs, you know, apostle so-and-so. And so my question is, what does he mean by that? Uh, you know, is, is, does he view himself as a pastor or does he view himself like one of the apostles? So there was the original 12. Judas, of course, defected. And Jesus had prophesied that he would defect and that um, God would use his rebellion and his sin uh, to bring about, you know, God's ultimate purpose to see Messiah crucified, pierced through for our iniquity. He is replaced, as you read in Acts chapter 1, by Matthias, by Lot, prior to the coming of um, the Holy Spirit. So God gave them direction as they drew lots, and that was necessary. Then you have an apostle like the Apostle Paul. He's not one of the original 12. He won't be one of the 12 that will sit on the 12 thrones of Israel, judging the tribes of Israel. 
Uh, Barnabas is called an apostle and it appears in a very technical way. Um, and so you have some other James, the half brother of Christ, uh, is referred to as an apostle. He wrote the book of James in the New Testament, not to be confused with one of the original 12 where you had a man named James. So um, the term reverend, personally, I don't like it. And so occasionally someone will address me, Reverend Bo- Brogy, and I say, well, why don't you just call me Pastor Carl or or Pastor Brogy, or if you want, you can call me Dr. Brogy, but I don't like Reverend Brogy. And now I'm not against terms and titles because God gives authority and leaders in the church and we need to respect that. And sometimes we get too casual under the false banner of humility. But with that said, uh, I think it's important to recognize that we're all reverends, so to speak. Uh, The term reverend kind of implies the idea, well, he's a holy man. And he's holier maybe than me. Well, uh, that shouldn't be the case. In biblical terminology, we are all saints. We're all holy ones. Because holiness is not built on performance. It's built on your position. Uh, When you become a Christian, if any man is in Christ, then that's the simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament. He takes on Christ's righteousness. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin. If you read the verses before it, the pronouns are really clear. The father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was sinless. He was perfect to be sin on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus bore in his own body in the cross our sin. Why? So that, here's the reason, we might become, because this is what we need if we're going to have a relationship with God and go to heaven someday, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Again, the simplest definition of a believer is he is in Christ. So everyone listening to my voice this morning, when God looks down from heaven, he either sees them as outside of Christ, stained, dirty, guilty, a child of wrath, or he sees them in Christ with Christ's righteousness and therefore saints. So sainthood in the Bible, unlike in Catholicism, is not predicated, it's not built on what you've done, it's built on your position. We call that justification in the New Testament. Now, once we are justified, we are to be, uh, we are to grow in the process of becoming like Christ. We call that process sanctification. There's a progressive ongoing aspect of sanctification where God is making true in my experience what he has already declared to me, me to be in my position. Um, but in Roman Catholicism, that's really where the term reverend found its roots. And for them, justification, becoming or being declared righteous is, is not uh, based on your faith alone in Christ alone. It's also based on what you do where that's contrary to the New Testament because we are not saved by anything we do. We are declared righteous solely on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf. So I don't like the term reverend. One, it's not a biblical title. So if I really want to use a biblical title of someone who leads a local church, I would prefer the term pastor. And that pastor, that elder, that bishop, might have the gift of pastor teacher where he stays a long time or he might have the gift of apostleship, not the office, but the gift uh, as a sent one where he does the same things as a pastor does, 
but he's gifted really in getting churches up and started and running, usually has a strong emphasis on evangelism, but then he moves on uh, to plan another church. And there are some men who spend their whole lives doing that. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So I hope that helps. Um, do you have a follow-up question? Is he still on the line or is he gone? Are you there, caller? I think he, he was just listening. All right, good. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, very good. Uh, well, of course, we are closing in on a very eventful election, and uh, we've got apparently some questions already in regards to the election. Uh, one person would like to know, with all that is at stake for Christians, is it okay to vote for someone who may not share all of our morals. We know this election will affect the unborn as well as what pastors can say from the pulpit. And even WAGP could be affected by new regulations from a non-Christian administration. What is our responsibility? Should we vote if we don't totally approve of the candidate who is most closely aligned with our beliefs? And if I may add one uh, question, should we as Christians, uh, if we don't like either of the candidates or all four of the candidates, um, should we abstain from voting? Well, we sure and certainly should not abstain from voting because uh, I've already voted because I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. on Election Day. So I voted early. Uh, but with that said, um, there's a lot more that's involved in this election than just the highest office in the land. Uh, there are other candidates who are running for other positions. And then there is some... Uh, issues like in our own county uh, concerning taxes and uh, whether you want an increase in the sales tax and, you know, to, to do certain things. So you should always vote. I think it's part of our responsibility as a Christian. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount likened us to light and he likened us to salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So if we are to act as salt, one of the chief functions of salt in the first century was not simply to add flavor, but it was to preserve. It was a preservative. If you killed an animal and you wanted to enjoy that animal a month later, you just salted it and it would last a long, long time. Uh, people today still salt hams and, you know, they, they hang them and they can be covered in mold and, but the meat has been preserved by the salt and they cut some of the mold off and they've got some great salted ham. He also says that you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. So light dispels darkness as Jesus teaches. So as Christians, sometimes we don't always have the choices that we want. Sometimes people will come to me and say, well, this person doesn't meet the biblical qualifications to be a leader. Well, he may not, but remember the biblical qualifications for leadership in Israel concerned a king who was supposed to be a believer. And in the New Testament, it concerns leaders in the church like pastors who's supposed to be a believer. And there must be things in place as it relates to uh, those particular people. But when we're dealing with a politician, we're dealing with an entirely different animal. Now, there are certainly uh, men in the Bible who have political positions who are believers. And that's fantastic. Though, let me just say, let's just say for the sake of argument that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were both passionate, born-again Christians 
who reflected God's values and God's word, and neither of them do, but for the sake of argument, if they did, I think practically it would probably change very little long-term in America. You say, why do you say that, Pastor? Because our hope as Christians is not in the White House, it's in the church house. And the only thing that's going to save America from disaster is a revival in America. Uh, It's only going to be a sweeping revival. And look, you know, you should pray for revival, but also understand there's coming a time in human history where there will be no revival. Thank you very much. Some people, you know, get mad at me when I say that. But it's the truth because the Bible teaches there's coming a a great apostasy. So as Christians, we are to be salt. We are to preserve righteousness. We are to be light. We are to dispel darkness. So when you look at this current presidential election, you have two people, basically. I mean, you can write somebody in or you can invite. There are actually five presidential people on the ballot. I was thinking there's going to be four. There was five uh, when I went into my booth to vote. In either case, you know, you can vote for the other people, but it, you know, they're not going to be elected. In the end, you have to vote your conscience. So I'm not going to chide anyone. If someone says I'm going to write someone in or I'm going to vote for some other party or on that particular issue, I am going to leave it blank. Well, if that's what God leads you to do, then that's what you should do. Uh, The other side of it is there are Christians who would argue, well, we know what Hillary Clinton is going to do. I mean, look, in the last debate, she was without apology. She didn't come back out and say, you know, I'm against partial birth abortion. Her husband, like her, were in favor of it. And he had a bill twice on his desk. And most Americans have little idea and understanding of what happens in partial birth abortion. But, uh, you know, they deliver the baby. Um, and it, it's just an awful procedure. They, they, they suck the brains out. They crush the skull and they deliver a dead baby. And it's legal up to, you know, a day before the baby's supposed to be born, an hour before the baby's going to be born. How anyone can not call that murder is absolutely beyond me. Hillary Clinton has been in favor of that. Now, Donald Trump was once in favor of it, and he supposedly has changed his position. And uh, though I, I, I would think as a pastor, I would hear him say, you know, I was once very foolish and uh, taught the same thing that you believe, Hillary. But, you know, God has changed my heart. I've never heard any wording like that. And that's one of the reasons I could not support Donald Trump during the primary season. And I think men like Jerry Falwell Jr. and Dr. Jeffries were very, very foolish and lacked incredible discernment for, uh, I shouldn't say Jerry Falwell, Jonathan Falwell, his brother was against, uh, was against Trump. And, uh, and, And I would say Jerry Sr., if he were here, uh, there'd be no doubt in my mind uh, where what he what he would say, uh, having spoken with him on a number of occasions. But lay all that aside, um, you know, I think we're very foolish to have promoted the guy to begin with. And so now we're left with two people, one who's thoroughly corrupt and the other who's a pervert in a lot of ways. And he can say, well, he hasn't done this. Or he, but look, the mouth speaks what's in the heart. But I look at it this way. If you vote for Hillary, you know what you're going to get. If you vote for Donald Trump, it's a gamble. But at least he says, I'm going to change this and I'm not going to do this. And he, listen, this election is about the Supreme Court as much as anything. 
Uh, the la- every single president since Ronald Reagan has appointed at least two people to the Supreme Court of the United States. This president could potentially uh, appoint four. And I suspect that if Hillary Clinton is elected, she will probably have that privilege because uh, some of the justices who are very liberal, who are over, you know, 77 years of age, will now see an opportunity to retire comfortably and for their kind of man to take their place. And listen, if we have a fundamentally different court, it is going to change life in America. Um, it, it's it's going to be a sad day. All I see the most Donald Trump can do is potentially delay the agony. Um, Maybe he can put off. Maybe he can buy us some time. Maybe the American people will repent. Uh, That's the best I think he can do. And, you know, I know there are people who say, like Dr. James Dobson, that he's a new young Christian. And I, I I don't see that. I'd like to believe that, but I just don't see that in the man. I don't see any change of heart or open confession that he's met Christ and that he's born again. But in the end, you have to vote your conscience. And I don't think it's necessarily evil if you go in there and you vote for Donald Trump to say that, look, if I can buy some time and I can have some conservative justices put on the Supreme Court, then I'm going to do that because religious freedoms will be significantly hampered. Now, let me just say parenthetically, it's kind of a non-issue for South Carolina. Uh, Donald Trump is going to win South Carolina. Uh, it's it just, it's going to go Republican. So it's kind of a non-issue for South Carolina. But there's a lot of people in Georgia who are listening to me today and people who are listening through the Internet. And there are other states where it is a big issue. And Georgia, surprisingly, is very close because the North has moved into the South and the Northern values are very different from traditional Christian based Southern values that we've enjoyed for a long time. And, and we're seeing that reflected now in the political realm. So uh, these are challenging days. Vote your conscience. But I think it's wrong not to vote. Not to mention, again, there's a number of issues on the ballot. And these are important issues. And when you go into the voting box, you should know what those issues are. At least read of them beforehand so you know how you're going to vote. And if we can, you know, we should vote for someone who the best reflects biblical Christian values. Uh, Look, I'd like a born-again head dog catcher if I can get him uh, down to the smallest office. Every everything is important. So, all right, appreciate that question. All right, eight four three five two five one eight five nine toll free eight seven seven nine two four seventy nine eighty. And then, of course, you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener would like to know: After the seven year tribulation, when the raptured church returns with Christ. Is this now the new earth, and are we in a new glorified body, all church-age saints and those who died in God before Christ? Is this right? Now, this begins the 1,000-year reign of Christ with all of these and the post-tribulation saints. Now, is this the time when people marry again and have children for a 1,000 years? The only people who can have children are post-tribulation saints. Is that true? Uh, do we, the raptured church, see this, and uh, we are, are we there with them? Um, and these questions go on. We just cannot marry and have children because we are in glorified bodies. But are we there or no? Or do I have all this wrong? Can you please explain what happens after the thousand years? Also explain where and when the temple is to be 
rebuilt uh, before the rapture or after? Where is the 37 acres? And uh, wasn't this where the temple was years ago in the Old Testament? Uh, please explain. Now, once rebuilt, is it destroyed again? Is that the abomination of desolation? Well, a lot of questions there. And, and by the way, let me just say parenthetically, uh, we offer a class on Sunday morning. It's called the Discovery Class, and it's a 45-week course. And one of the topics is God's prophetic calendar. I happened to be speaking in that class last Sunday since I was preaching, was not preaching. And in the second hour, they're looking at God's prophetic calendar. And I give a chart, which I will give as we walk through the book of Revelation that we are planning to teach in the next calendar year. Uh, with that said, the next event on God's prophetic schedule is the rapture of the church. There's no prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. It could take place before this radio broadcast is over. There's never been any prophecy for the rapture. The Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. Now you'll meet some Christians who don't believe in biblical imminency. They believe there has to be a lot of things before Christ can ever come again. There has to be a one world leader. There has to be a temple where the abomination of desolation has taken place. And I would say, yes, that's true for the second coming, but not for the rapture of the church. So the rapture of the church is a distinctly different uh, teaching from the second coming. And when we go through the book of Revelation, I will show that it's not some made up doctrine, not something that Darby invented, that it's a biblical doctrine that has actually been held to for a long, 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 long time. When Jesus said in the upper room after Judas was gone and he began to reveal church truth to the apostles after Judas had left to betray him, he said, in my father's house are many rooms. I know the old King James says mansion, but the word mansion in the 17th century did not mean like a big house. It referred to a room. Uh, but, you know, Christians today have in their mind, well, you know, Peter is going to, you know, put me in a golf cart and take me down to Hallelujah Boulevard and say, here's your mansion over here and uh, enjoy here are the keys. And uh, that that's not really the picture in my father's house are many dwelling places or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And so first he comes for his saints. We meet him in the air. We shall all be caught up. Uh, we will be in the Latin translation of the Bible. It's the word repto. We get or repturo and we get our word rapture from it. So some people say, well, the rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, yes, it is. It's found in the Latin translation of the Bible that was used for a thousand years. And so there are some words that come into our English text or into our English uh, theology out of Latin. The word Trinity is a Latin term. The word Lucifer, which the King James Bible uses, it doesn't interpret the Hebrew text. It just takes the word right out of the Latin translation. So there's a lot of words that we use that come from the Latin Bible. Uh, you can call it the catching up. But we shall be caught up. We'll meet the Lord in the air. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, there is a space of time. It appears to be very short, but there's a space of time after the rapture of the church, where shortly thereafter, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy begins. 
And we know that it will begin with a covenant that a one world leader called by 30 some different titles. We know him by the title um, used only once in the Bible in the New Testament, the Antichrist by the Apostle John in his first epistle. Um, And so he is going to come. He's going to sign a covenant, a firm covenant with Israel. And of course, we also know that in the middle of the 70th week, the 70th week is known as the tribulation period. The midpoint is when the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple. Now, when will that temple start? It could start tomorrow morning. Uh, There's nothing prophetically that requires it to be built during the time of the tribulation period though I suspect it probably will not be built until the tribulation period. You mentioned 37 acres. Sometimes it's called 36 acres, but the most contested piece of real estate on the face of the earth is uh, the 37 acres that we call the Temple Mount. And some of you have heard me reference that before. The Temple Mount is a flat piece of property. If you are standing on the Mount of Olives and you look directly across between you and the Temple Mount is the Kidron Valley. At the bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you walk down the hill, you go through the Garden of Gethsemane, across the Brook Kidron, uh, up the hill, through a cemetery, and right in front of you is the Temple Mount. It was a mount that was flattened by King Herod. Uh, he, he was an architectural genius. Uh, the Temple Mount was originally the f- uh, threshing floor of Aruna, according to the Old Testament. David bought it from Aruna. Aruna wanted to give it to him for free. And he said, I, I don't want to take it for nothing. Then it means nothing to God for me just to uh, take this from your hand. I want to pay you for it. I want my sacrifice to mean something to the Lord that my heart is in it because where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And that threshing floor becomes the place where Solomon ultimately builds his temple. That's the first temple. The Solomonic temple is destroyed when the Babylonians come in and they flatten the place. And then you read after the exile, different people who are involved in the process. Nehemiah gets the walls up so there's protection so they ultimately can rebuild the temple. That's the second temple. At one point in that second temple's history, King Herod, who lives before Christ, decides that he wants to really make it a premier spot. And so he takes an unlevel piece of property and he builds a series of arches and covers it with dirt and more arches and covers it with dirt. And he creates a flat platform with this retaining wall all the way around it. If you go to Jerusalem today, and maybe some listening can go with me the next time I go, I just returned a few weeks ago, uh, the retaining wall is still there. Uh, it was, there's one section of the retaining wall. Uh, we used to call the Wailing Wall. We typically now call it the Western, Western Wall. Before the Jews recaptured uh, the Temple Mount in the 67 War, that's as close as they could get. And they would stand there and pray, and they still do. And they pray uh, to the living God, asking God to bring about the peace of Jerusalem, to bring Messiah back. What they don't see is Messiah has already come, but he is coming back. And so at the second coming, when he returns, he is actually going to return to the very mountain that he ascended to heaven from. In Acts 1, he's on the Mount of Olives, 
when he, for the fifth time, gives the Great Commission and he tells them not to do anything until the Holy Spirit comes because you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit on high and you'll be able to be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest parts of the earth. And then he ascends up into heaven. And of course, the angels appear and they say, well, what are you, what are you looking at? You know, you got a mission. Um, but just remember, he's going to come in the exact same way he left. He left physically, bodily. He's going to return again physically, bodily, and he's going to come to the same place. Uh, the scripture speaks of that in Zechariah, for instance, the 14th chapter. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations there's a war. We often call it the Battle of Armageddon, but it's really a whole series of battles that culminates in Jerusalem. And uh, the city of Jerusalem is going to be a, a big fight, and the nations of the world are going to gather there, and the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and on the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south and you will flee by the valley of my mountain and he goes on, describes this river that's going to flow and it's going to go all the way to the Dead Sea and Ezekiel tells us that the Dead Sea will ultimately become fresh. The water is going to be as fresh as can be. People will dry their nets next to it. They'll fish in it you've ever been to the Dead Sea, there's absolutely zero life in it. Absolutely nothing. Um, not even the smallest amoeba can survive in the Dead Sea. Zero life. But it is literally going to come back to life. Um, so the rapture of the church, weeks, days, months later, a covenant with Israel, the 70th week of Daniel begins after the tribulation is over. The first half is the time of tribulation. The second half is described with a modifier, great tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, after that, Messiah returns to the earth. Uh, and so we're going to be actually studying this a little bit here in our series on Daniel coming up. He will rule and reign for a thousand years. <coughs> Excuse me. The earth will be refurbished and made new for that thousand year period. At the end of the thousand years, there'll be a final revolt and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. All right, very good. 525-1859, that's toll free. Um, 877-924-7980. Or you can always email us at tbl at net. Was that the complete answer? Yeah, I mean, I could go on for an hour here. Um, but my recommendation to her, if she's local, is go to the Discovery class or maybe go online if she's calling from another state and uh, go to searchthescriptures.org. And there is a series of messages, which is basically the discovery class put on uh, DVDs and you can stream it or you can download it through the Search the Scriptures uh, podcast and listen to the uh, topic number nine in the Back to Basics series. It's called God's Prophetic Calendar. And I'll walk you through step by step from the rapture of the church all the way to the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, but if you're local, go to the discovery class. They, they just started it in the 11 o'clock hour. 
and uh, or you can go to the 915 hour and worship with us at 11 and th- they'll they'll come back to it um it's it's taught in every discovery class and this is essential doctrine and unfortunately we live in a day where a lot of pastors won't speak on prophecy and they're afraid of it but listen we're called to speak the whole counsel of scripture and about a third of the bible is prophetic in nature and you can't ignore prophecy and not teach on it so these are important, important issues. Very good. Our next caller would like to know, how long were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they sinned? That's a good question. Um, let me turn to the book of Genesis for just a moment. You know, sometimes people will say, well, you know, God told them not to do that, and they immediately went to the tree. Well, that's not actually true. Uh, that may be colorful to say that, but it's not true. Uh, we know that they were created on the sixth day, after every day of creation, God said, it's very good. It's good. And after the sixth day, he said, it is very good. So if the sixth day at the end of the sixth day was very good, sin had not entered into the world. So we <laughs> they didn't sin on day one, day six, uh, day one of their creation. Uh, day seven, uh, at the end of the day, the Sabbath day, God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. And so it appears very clearly there. They didn't sin on the seventh day. So they were alive, you know, two days or at least part of two days. Uh, when you go from chapter two into chapter three here, uh, right in the opening verse, Eve is being tempted by the serpent at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so um, I think you can argue that it's a short period of time. We don't know if it's a day I mean, if it's two days or a week or maybe a month, but it appears to be very short. Now, there was a very famous Christian man. His name was Archbishop Usher. And Usher argued that they sinned on the 10th day of creation, uh, the 10th day after the creation of after their creation, because that would bring them to the day of atonement. And because the day of atonement is on the 10th day of the first month. And so that's a supposition. He may be right. And we may get to heaven and discover the day that God made coats of skin to cover Adam and Eve for their uh, rebellion may have indeed been um, the day that they rebelled against God. But we don't know for sure. But we can say this much. It was not day six. It was not day seven. And it appears to be a short time thereafter. In fact, when Jesus describes um, the devil in John chapter eight, he said he was a murderer from the beginning. And when he indicts the scribes in Luke 11, he uh, holds them accountable for the blood of Abel all the way to the blood of Zechariah. Uh, And he holds them uh, accountable for all the prophets that they killed, Abel being the first one, something Jesus reveals that we don't know in the Old Testament, but he reveals it to us in the New Testament that Abel was a prophet of God. And he describes uh, these men as being murderers from the foundation of the world. So it's early on is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I've heard all kinds of theories. It was a hundred years or whatever. And, uh, but it appears to be very quick after they are created. And, and there's another way I think you can reason that is God says, be fruitful and multiply. And so if um, <clears throat> indeed they are unfallen and they refuse to be fruitful and have children, then they would have been living in rebellion against the commandments of God. 
So with that said, it appears to be very, very quick uh, after the creation of man. Uh, there's only a matter of days every month that a woman can get pregnant, and she's not pregnant until after the fall. And so uh, it appears to be a very short period of time. Good question. Appreciate it. Very That's, good. Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask. Indeed, indeed. Um, another listener would like to know that in Mark 8, verses 23 through 25, why did Jesus take uh, two applications of the dirt on the man's eyes before the man saw clearly? Well, let me just turn there for just a second. Um, this is a miracle that is unique to Mark's gospel. It's not recorded in the other gospels. And uh, it is an interesting miracle in the placement in terms of the timing of this miracle, I think is very important. It's not accidental. There's, there are no accidents in the Bible. Everything happens by God's uh, divine providence. And they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him and taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men for I am seeing them like trees walking about. Then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. So here you have this blind man uh, and the Lord supernaturally heals him. And he, he does it in a, a rather unusual way. Could Jesus just have spoken his blindness away? Surely. And there are times when he does that. Uh, there are times when he um, um, touches someone and then heals him instantly. Uh, th this miracle is kind of a two stage miracle, so to speak. He uh, puts saliva apparently on his hands and then rubs his eyes and uh, rubs the, the man's eyes and, and he asks him what he sees. And the Lord obviously expects a certain kind of answer. And he says, well, I see men walking like trees, which may indicate that this blindness was not congenital, not from birth, that he had at one time been able to see. And so he's able to identify using those kinds of terms. And then Jesus a uh, second time uh, touches him. And this time he can see clearly. Now, remember this happens right after Jesus had done an incredible miracle and he had just rebuked the apostles or the disciples who become apostles uh, for their own unbelief. If you remember here in John chapter eight, uh, he had just performed the miracle of feeding thousands and thousands of people. And yet these men didn't really respond to that miracle. These men uh, had a spirit of unbelief. First he had fed the 5,000 and now he feeds the 4,000. And these guys are basically saying this, the same kinds of uh, questions. Um, it, it says here, why do you discuss, discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart implication? You do. You guys aren't seeing clearly having eyes that do not see quoting Isaiah and having ears that do not hear. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him 12 and, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. 
He says, do you not yet understand? So they're in this point of unbelief in their life. And uh, the Lord is just reminding them, look, your, your faith isn't all that great right now. It's kind of incomplete. It's foggy faith. It's like this man who he illustrates through this divine healing who can see, but he doesn't really see clearly. But there's a form of encouragement here. I think there's coming a day when they will see clearly. So that's how I take that miracle in terms of the context in which it's found in, in Mark chapter 8. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Jennifer from Beaufort writes, I recently discovered that several companies and corporations that I support through patronage give funds in support of the LGBT and Planned Parenthood causes. My discovery began with companies like Starbucks and Ben and & Jerry's, and as I did further research, I've discovered a daunting list of companies with which I've purchased items from or subscribed to, such as Verizon, Apple, Microsoft, and Levi's. What would be your advice as far as how to move forward knowing that these companies are linked to such causes? The list I've found is pretty exhaustive, and I, I would say that I probably subscribe to or purchase from at least half of the companies on the list. I want to do what's biblically correct and need help discerning how to move forward. Thank you for your time. Well, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, Rick and I were having this discussion recently. Before me this morning is a uh, glass bottle, and it says Starbucks Frappuccino. Um, and Rick knows I like these. This is the Mocha Frappuccino. But he informed me that when the supply runs out, I'm going to have to drink something else. And Rick, what was your rationale behind that? Well, um, there was apparently a a meeting in which the CEO was addressing stockholders. And this was actually a while ago. It just came back up in the uh, social media not too long ago. But uh, uh, one of the stockholders um, made some concern and reference to the fact that um, uh, that they were supporting the LGBTQ movement as a company and corporation, um, and um, that if uh, the the CEO then in turn said, if um, you know, if our customers don't like it, they can get their uh, coffee products elsewhere. At which point, right? I just said yes, but I'll go elsewhere. I- interestingly, yeah. you know, does my, that mean my, I have to go elsewhere well, no, too? You know, it's it's funny. <laughs> right. My wife made a very very right. valid comment after I told her that. She said, "Now you know, if you just stop." drinking Starbucks and don't write them and let them know this, then doesn't mean much, it, it doesn't it? mean a yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. She makes a good point. So here's the deal. Again, we're supposed to be salt and light. Salt preserves righteousness. Light dispels darkness. Now, there's a sense in which you can not totally isolate yourself from everything in the world. Let me give you an illustration. In Luke 16, uh, Jesus talks about Uh, a man who had a stewardship and the stewardship's taken away from him. And so uh, Jesus speaks of what he does and uh, how he's uh, shrewd. And then he applies it to us as Christians that we need to use the mammon of unrighteousness, worldly riches in a way that um, we might uh, invest in eternity. This guy made temporal friends with uh, the money that was someone else's so that when he lost his stewardship, he'd have some people to care for him. And Jesus said, we are to be uh, like the man, but different. 
and that we are to use because it's not our money, it's God's money. We are to use literally the, the, the Greek text says, I know some of the newer translations just say worldly riches, but it says the mammon of unrighteousness. And so Jesus recognizes that money is tainted. Uh, I um, use a local bank and I suspect that some of the money that sits in that bank has been used for causes that I would consider unrighteous. Now, I don't know that they've ever say lent money to Planned Parenthood to build an abortion mill. I don't know for sure that they've lent money to uh, some uh, alcohol beverage store to help people get drunk and high. But I suspect that they have because they're a large enough bank. So there's a sense in which you cannot totally remove yourself. But there is a sense in which we need to speak and need to be heard. You know, I was disgusted, absolutely disgusted, like Rick is with Starbucks, with Target, when they decided that they want to push this transgender bathroom thing. And to me, this is an important issue. And it will be a non-issue, I can tell you that, if Hillary Clinton is elected and we have the right Supreme Court justices in there, the right ones from her perspective. This will be an issue that Christians all across America will face. And they will say, I'm sure in the churches, you need to have transgender bathrooms if you want to keep your tax-exempt status. Oh, you're free because there's religious freedom under the constitution to do what you want in the four walls, but we don't have to give you a tax exempt status. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that if Hillary Clinton is elected as president of the United States and she, she chooses some Supreme court justices that uh, free speech will be free, but not in every uh, avenue that that speech can be projected like a Christian radio station. So if uh, Pastor Carl Brogy wants to get on the air and give a sermon, is it okay to be gay? And the answer that I gave in that hour-long sermon is no, it is a sin and men must decide whether or not they will repent of that sin. Um, I suspect that the FCC, if the right people are in the Supreme Court, will say, yeah, you can say that, just not under the FCC regulations. And so things are going to radically, radically change. That's, that's why I say, as I said earlier, that this election, as much as anything, is about the Supreme Court of the United States. And I am hoping that it won't be fundamentally changed for the next three or four decades should the Lord tarry. But I say all that to say that this is an issue of conscience. And if God leads you to say, well, I'm not going to Starbucks anymore, Fine, but I, I think you will find that the, the further you dig, as you say, you know, there's a whole plethora of organizations that you shop at. And so we need to speak up. We need to be salt and light. But we also, there is a balance, too, where we have to have compassion. And, I, you know, it was just a few months ago I was in Starbucks and I go over once a month to our Bluffton Hilton Head campus and I had uh, stopped in there to get a, a Frappuccino and, uh, and while I was in there, I ended up having a conversation with a man and just about led him to Christ. In fact, he's extremely open and I sent him a booklet, how to prove the Bible is true. And that was just a conversation that I had had and that was providential. So Jesus went where sinners are and there's a lot of people who I'm sure work for Starbucks who are lost and 
Um, you know, they need to hear the gospel too. But we also need to exercise our voice and we don't need to be afraid of it. And, you know, when Edmund Burke says all it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do evil. Um, to do nothing. Th- do nothing, excuse me. That, that's a true statement. And it's predicated on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to speak truth, even if it carries with it consequences of persecution and other implications. But again, it's, it's, a, it's a personal issue how you're going to exercise um, these kinds of day-to-day activities and where you're going to shop and where you're not going to shop. So I've not been back to Target. Now, you might feel the freedom to go to Target, and I won't judge you if you go there. Um, I have been there to Starbucks. Uh, but I, I, Well, I'll tell you what. I, right. I won't go to Starbucks unless I, I purpose to share the gospel with someone there. Well, that's a good, that's a good, that's a right. good approach. I, I, can, I can appreciate that. And I still would like to have my okay. frappuccinos you, you there. All right. You got it. <laughs> in, either, in either case, uh, these are important issues. And what's happening today is Christians, what's happening in America is Christians are no longer sharing their faith. The average Christian in America no longer attempts to take people through the plan of salvation. Why is that? Because their heart is being entertained on the world and your mouth speaks what's in the heart and they've lost their first love for Christ and the passion to speak about someone that you deeply care and love about and want other people to know and love is being lost. And that's why Christians are no longer sharing their faith like they once did. And the longer that goes on, the more godless the culture will become. And America really won't function as America. The Constitution is predicated on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And if that ethic is lost, our Constitution will not survive. All right, we've got a time for one more quick question. Are you familiar with the what it's uh, what is orange.org youth ministry? If you are, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm not in favor of it. Um, here's their basic premise. They are trying to say to evangelicals that a high, high percentage of youth are walking away from the faith. And the reason they say they're walking away from the faith is because we're not dealing in a proper way in teaching them. So they've created this curriculum from, you know, the crib to through high school students. And yet it's a worldly curriculum. They are trying to, uh, in, to become like the world to reach the world. And the problem, the reason these young teenagers and college students are walking away from the faith is because they're not converted. And the reason they're not converted is because, among other things, the paradigm that we've adopted for the Lord's Day is an unbiblical paradigm. And the preaching of the word, verse by verse, has stopped. And so people aren't really being challenged to worship God with their whole heart, mind, and soul. And so we have people who are Christianized, but who are not born again. And the way to solve that is not to adopt the What is Orange program. Look, when you go on their website and you see people like from Fuller Seminary, a seminary that denies biblical infallibility endorsing them, that should be a red flag right off. So anyway, we're out of time, but we're glad that you could join us today for the Bible Line. This will be posted online at wagp.net. 